This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Let's begin our discussion of protection of consumer data by first considering some of the benefits of large scale data collection. Um, Imagine a word cloud that uh, contains several examples of the various benefits that come from technology applied to large-scale data collection. We can think of driverless cars as an example. Um, Personalized medicine is something else that results from large-scale data collection. The efficiencies of the sharing economy. These are just a few examples of the various benefits that you get from large-scale data collection that benefits society as a whole. Unfortunately, on the flip side, there are risks associated with this large-scale data collection. Um, As data is collected in large quantities, it can be misused, and it also is subject to hacking and uh, being accessed by unauthorized third parties. So because of these risks, this is where the possibility of privacy invasion comes into play. And there is a real tension, a real push and pull between using data for really cool, awesome things. Like many of you, I have a lot of smartphone apps that I really really enjoy. They really improve my life. But at the same time, they collect all this data. And that can feel really invasive. And uh, there's this just this push and pull between using data for cool things, the utility of data, and privacy. How do we protect it? And so what John and I are going to talk about a little bit today is how do you find that right balance between protecting privacy and still having useful, usable data? One of the reasons that data privacy is a little hard to talk about is it can be a little confusing. It seems to have this really big scope. And oftentimes, people will talk about data security and data privacy in one breath. But I'd like you to imagine them as sort of a Venn diagram, where yes, they intersect, but there are some things that are really within the realm of security and some things that are specifically for privacy. So things such as hacking, ransomware attack, malicious attacks. Generally, if there's a malicious user, illicit, illegal use of data, think of that as security. Privacy can definitely be people using the data legally They don't actually intend to cause harm, but for the user, it feels like, or for the person whose data it's about, it feels like an invasion. It feels um, like surveillance and unwanted. So today, we're going to talk less about security. So we're not really talking about data breaches. There have been RAN researchers here recently. We have a lot of expertise on that. But what we're talking about today is specifically privacy. So legal uses of data, but it makes the person who the data is about uncomfortable. Um, So what happens when privacy is violated? You can get that really creepy feeling that someone's watching you. You can feel surveyed. And so what? So what if you feel creepy? It's not a real harm. Well, a lot of the privacy research has shown that when people feel like they're being surveyed or feel like they're being watched, it can really impinge on their freedom of speech. We call that the chilling effect, where people don't feel at ease to go out and say what they might have said otherwise. 
Another thing that happens when you're feeling surveyed is it may impinge on your sense of creativity. You're willing to try new things, your, your sense of autonomy. So it's really important to keep in mind that privacy structurally helps some of these fundamental American human rights, freedom of speech, and personal autonomy. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what privacy research has shown. First of all, it's important to keep in mind that privacy is personal. Every person has their own idea of what is private to them. What I consider private, John might not have any problem sharing at all. And so it can be difficult to decide what actually is private if everyone has their own preference. Another thing to keep in mind is that privacy is not new. Uh, there have definitely been references to privacy and the ancient religious texts of many different traditions. What is new is digital privacy. And what's new about it is the scope, the scale of data sharing. With digital, with digital data, information can be shared with the entire world in seconds. And, and don't even think about deleting it. I mean, do you know how hard it is to get information off the internet once it's been shared? So the scope and the scale is really important with digital privacy. Another thing about privacy, and this sort of is contrary to a lot of the popular reporting, is that youth and teens really do care about privacy. In all the research, it shows that, yes, they do want privacy. They care a lot. And in fact, they're doing these really complicated methods to sort of reverse engineer social media and all these systems so that they can protect their privacy. One thing that happens, though, is that teens often want to share information with their friends, but they want to keep it private from their parents. So then parents and adults will watch that teen behavior and say, oh, they're sharing with, everything, with everyone, so they don't want privacy. But in fact, they do. So it's important to keep that in mind. One last point about privacy is uh, study after study shows that Americans care about privacy whether it's a lab study where you bring them in or if it's an online survey, Americans say they want privacy. The catch is they don't always manage it well. So if you watch them and you see their behavior, it looks like they're sharing a lot of information. We call this the privacy paradox. So what this means is people's stated preferences for privacy don't always match their behaviors. And one of the reasons that there's this, this discrepancy is because it's really hard to stay fully informed about what's going on with your data. It's very difficult to imagine what all the risks are. And often, it's not even your primary task. For example, you're downloading an app. You get this notice, and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I just want to use that app. Let me use it. So this is why you see this difference between stated preferences, people want privacy, and their behavior. So people around the world also care about privacy. It's not just Americans. However, law, cultural expectations, expectations of technologies and technology companies do differ around the world. Um, America is neither, neither has the most strict privacy regulations nor the most lax. So if we just take two examples, you've probably heard of uh, recent regulation GDPR from the EU. Um, and we'll come back to that a little more later at the end of this talk. But that is definitely much more strict protection than what you see here in the US. And, um, 
an example of a country that maybe has more lax privacy protections or at least more lax cultural expectations is India, where there is some privacy protection and law on the books, but it's not that strongly enforced. So one thing you might see in some parts of India are um, uh, their equivalent of the social security number posted on a train station to show who is who is riding the train. Whereas in the U.S., we've become much more protective of our personal identifiers and social security numbers. In the U.S., we have a patchwork quilt of regulations. Uh, different types of data are protected under different regulations. You are probably aware that consumer privacy is protected through FTC oversight. Um, however, Student data, educational data, is protected under FERPA. There's a different law for health data. That's HIPAA, that form you sign whenever you go to the doctor's office. And then if you're interested in perhaps government wiretaps, then you would be looking at the Electronic Communications and Privacy Act and the FISA court and so on and so on. And the point is that each of these regulations protects either one type of person or one type of data or one type of invasion. And it can leave this sort of siloed patchwork approach to privacy protections. So John and I are going to talk about two areas of privacy protections that U.S. regulation has looked into. Um, I'm going to talk about privacy notices, and John will talk about data anonymization. So uh, privacy notices, you're probably familiar with those really long privacy policies, uh, you know, maybe 42 paragraphs or so, particularly on websites. Um, these notices, they're too complex for people to read. One study found, the study is from 10 years ago, and it was just for websites, so it wasn't even smartphone apps. It found that if every American, if an American read every policy, of every website they went to, they would spend 244 hours a year reading privacy policies. So just to break that down for you, that's more than six 40-hour work weeks, right? I don't even get that much vacation, and I'm certainly not going to spend it all reading privacy policies, especially because they're not that useful. They're full of legalese. They are full of hemming and hawing words. We might. We could share this data. We'll, we'll, we might share it with our affiliates. What's an affiliate? So that information ends up being, those privacy policies as they're currently written, end up not being that useful to the consumer to make really good decisions about their privacy preferences. Okay, so the other area that we're considering is data anonymization. So when you think about data anonymization, the main approach here is that you want to remove the identity of the human subjects associated with the data. So you might have a case where you are collecting data, perhaps about health information. And there's value in collecting that information so that you can search for various medical research um, advances. But you want to remove the identity because if the identity of a given subject is discovered, that can lead to perhaps embarrassment if you're talking about uh, a sensitive health topic. So typically, this data is stored in tabular format. So that's basically, think of it as like large-scale Excel spreadsheets. And the way the data is typically stored is you have a row for each entry associated with a given human subject. Then you have columns where the columns represent various attributes for the uh, type of information. We typically can organize these columns into three categories. There are identifiers, quasi-identifiers, 
and then sensitive attributes. An example of an identifier would be something like name, uh, social security number, uh, telephone number, characteristics that can largely uniquely identify a given subject. Quasi-identifiers might be zip code, uh, perhaps career. These certainly cannot uniquely identify, but they can give clues of who the subject is. And then your sensitive attribute might be, for example, the health um, condition, the health allergy associated with each of the patients. So I'm going to kind of talk through our example here. You have to imagine we have a scenario where we have data that is organized by name, occupation, zip code, and then health allergy. Now, when we try to anonymize this data, there are a large number of anonymization approaches. One of the most common anonymization approaches is to remove the identifiers from the data. So this is essentially removing the personally identifiable information, or the PII, from the data. So in our case, if we have name, occupation, zip code, and health allergy, we would just have remaining just occupation, zip code, and health allergy. The problem with this approach is that it's very easy to reverse engineer this and to determine who, in fact, a given row relates to. In many cases, this is due to the ability to take information that's external to the database that you might know from other sources and then link that to the particular subject and then reverse engineer. And there have been several cases, both in academic literature and in real-world examples, where reverse engineering has happened and identities of subjects have been published. So this is the uh, challenge with anonymization. So John and I believe that a holistic approach to privacy is needed. So we've talked about how there's a patchwork quilt of regulations in the U.S. We've also mentioned that privacy notice and anonymization are tools that help protect privacy, but they have some flaws. So we think a holistic approach that takes into account the best tool at the appropriate time would really help protect consumer privacy. We're going to break down some tools, some regulatory options. So when you think about regulatory approaches to privacy, I would like you to bucket them into two different bins. So think about options where the user has control and the burden is largely on the user. Uh, so, or the consumer. So this means if the data is about you, you're in charge of making sure that your privacy is protected. There's a different option, though, and this is often called privacy by design. And what it means is that privacy is built into the tool or technology by default. The technologists, the computer scientists who are building that tool are going to design it in such a way that your privacy is protected from design to, you know, from, from soup to nuts. So I'm going to tell you about two options that put the burden on the user. Uh, we've already talked about one of them, privacy policies, but I want to really emphasize that it's necessary. Users, consumers need information, but what they need is meaningful notice and choice. So notices that give them the appropriate information at the appropriate time and let them 
make decisions, but choice, like real choice, not just take it or leave it. You, you either have to accept our entire privacy policy or you can't use it, but a meaningful choice here. And work here draws from this rich literature of notices and warnings that we have throughout the world. I mean, you can think of nutrition labels on cereal boxes that help you compare, what, you know, what does this cereal offer me? What are the benefits? What are the risks of this cereal? You could have a nutrition label approach to privacy policies as well. Another option that puts the burden on the users is a data market. So the idea here is that people can decide if they want to share their own data, and if they do, they sell it and they reap the appropriate economic value for it. So one of the ideas that one of the reasons that this idea is so tempting is because it essentially lets the free hand of the market come in and manage the privacy concerns of people. However, this option would pretty much break the internet. So many companies uh, rely on people's data being given to them or collecting that data for free, that it would essentially break their business model. So while I mentioned data market so that you know that it's an option, I personally don't see it as a viable option in the near future. So now for privacy design, again, the basic philosophy here is that you can build into the technology system various constraints and automated mechanisms that will help reduce the risk of privacy violation. So I'll consider four options that can fit within this overall bucket of the privacy by design philosophy. The first one to consider is data minimization. So the approach here is that you have policies and technologies in place that minimize the amount of data that's stored, as well as procedures in place that will delete the data after a certain amount of time. This is useful for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it means that the data collector, the um, corporation that may collect the data, will be um, less able to uh, reuse the data unbeknownst to the user. Um, but it also, particularly when you think about the possibility of hacking, which again is more of a security issue, if there is some sort of hack, the data is not there to be taken advantage of in the first place. So that's one approach, data minimization. Another approach is restrictions on secondary use. And so the idea here is that you have external policies in place that are imposed on the data collector to uh, restrict how the data can be reused. As you may be aware, there is an extensive marketplace of data exchange where companies are exchanging data in a wide variety of uh, domains. And it's written out in the legalese, these 42 pages of documents that you're supposed to read during your vacation. But the bottom line is most people don't have a clear understanding of that. If there are external restrictions in place, then this will minimize the ability for companies to profit in this way. The next option, is meaningful anonymization. So I just mentioned how anonymization is not perfect. There are a large set of anonymization techniques uh, and all of them have flaws to one degree or another. When we think about meaningful anonymization, we recognize that in certain cases, anonymization may be appropriate, but it should be used in a nuanced way, recognizing that number one, it's not perfect, 
uh, and recognizing that different types of anonymization are appropriate depending on what kind of data you're utilizing. If we think about some of the policies that are currently in place, for example, HIPAA. HIPAA has a privacy policy that is largely based on an anonymization approach. Uh, but there's no acknowledgement in HIPAA that this approach just largely does not work in the way that it's currently utilized. So that's what I mean by meaningful anonymization. And then finally, data stewardship is another approach that is often discussed in the academic literature. And the idea here is that you essentially assign an entity that's in charge of managing data and having responsibility for the privacy of the data. And this entity may or may not be the corporation that collects the data. So those are four approaches that all fit within the privacy by design philosophy. For options that put the burden on the user, it was meaningful notice and choice and data market. For privacy by design, we mentioned four, there are more, data minimization, restrictions on secondary use, meaningful anonymization, and data stewardship. So I know you've heard a lot about GDPR recently, and you're probably wondering which one of these tools does GDPR use? And well, the answer is almost all of the ones that we mentioned, everything except the data market are all part and parcel of GDPR. It includes some other provisions that we won't go into, but it does take this holistic approach of using different tools where appropriate to protect privacy. Now, um, one thing to keep in mind is that there are many questions that still need to be answered, um, both in practice and through um, further study. And we're going to consider four of those questions that uh, need to be answered. Yeah. So one area is what guidance should inform secondary use of data? So when should data be shared? When is it appropriate? I mean, we know that there are plenty of times when sharing it for research, sharing it with a health provider, it's really useful to be able to share that information. But as we've seen with recent scandals, sometimes sharing data doesn't feel appropriate. But how do we establish those guidelines in a clear, consistent way so that companies and data People who own data understand when is it appropriate to share and when isn't it. Another thing I already mentioned is how can we create meaningful notice and choice? How can we leave behind this system of too long privacy policies and give users meaningful notice that makes sense to them and meaningful choice so they can, can control their privacy preferences in the appropriate way? Another question to think about with respect to data stewardship is what logistics are needed for effective data stewardship and exactly what, how will uh, data stewardship be carried out? So, for example, to the extent that there is a third-party entity that's been empowered to manage the data that's collected by a given corporation, the next question would be where does the data actually reside? Would it reside with the original data collector or would it be copied over at some point and be in a separate database controlled by this entity to the extent that it's in a separate database? Under what circumstances would the original corporation still have some degree of access to that data? All of those kinds of things need to be worked out. The other issue is what privacy training is needed for those that build these technologies. 
We've seen recently that there have been several academic programs that have started to incorporate considerations of privacy into the uh, courses for students. But in many cases, the deepest thinking about privacy is happening in law schools and less so in computer science programs where the actual systems are um, being designed. So that probably needs to change so that the actual computer scientists and various other types of engineers are uh, forced to think about privacy um, more directly. So if there's one thing, I guess there's two things I'd like, like you to walk away from this meeting with. And one is, we mentioned a whole bunch of privacy tools and technologies, a number of different ways that privacy can be protected. None of them is a silver bullet. None of them just solves privacy. They're all needed in different places where appropriate, and therefore a holistic approach to regulation that considers all of the tools and technologies would be very helpful for improving privacy protections. The other thing is privacy by design can be encouraged through policy levers, whether through regulation, increased funding for education, um, better standards in this area. Regulation can definitely help out with privacy by design. And with that, we thank you. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.